<laughs> um, Dan, I'm, I, whoa. <laughs> We're finally doing it. We'll get into that in a second. Um, I'm stoked. I'm finally stoked. Um, I don't know. I don't know. What, we got any banner we want to do before we jump into this? What do we want to talk about? My potato is finally sprouted. That's pretty cool. Yeah, exciting. Oh, very exciting. I think that's what they are. Mm. I went back today and um, uh, some of the leaves were like kind of starting to like fall off and die. And I was like, oh, it must be too cold. So I had to cover them up today. I covered them up with a little blanket and... Hopefully they'll survive because it's, tell you what, it's still cold here, Dan. Mm. My potatoes, well, they're finally here, but oh, goodness. Godspeed and God bless. Godspeed and God bless. Uh, the common potato, the best food, perhaps. You know what I was thinking, actually, today, which I feel like you'd appreciate this. Um, you know what's making a running for possibly the best food? Ah. Hummus. Mm. It's getting up there. Nice. Hummus is pretty damn good. Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I found myself being like, whenever I make meals, I'm like, what can I make? To just put hummus on. <laughs> Can I just put hummus on a potato? I don't know. Can I put it on spinach? Sure. Why not? It's the other way around. It's not <laughs> you make a meal and then consider whether you could put hummus <laughs> yeah, on it. Exactly. Mm. Like, can I put hummus on Wheaties? I don't know. Would that make sense? Um, yeah. Mashed potato. I put it on mashed potato a lot. Wow. That sounds good. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Hummus and mashed potato, you say. Mm. Interesting. Do you, remember <laughs> Do you remember that time that my mind was blown about the fact that you could use garbanzo bean juice as like an egg white substitute <laughs> and i was like really excited and i told you and you're like wow jack i had no idea it's <laughs> like oh yeah okay whoa. <laughs> yeah i remember trying to affect some level of sarcasm i'm not quite sure whether whether it was on quite the level that you've just demonstrated sure, that was a bit of an exaggeration <laughs> that's uh that's that's the vegan uh that's like day one they tell you that mm. So mm-hmm. You can do what with what? Mm-hmm. I always thought that was just water. Mm. Mm. Um, anyway. Anyway. I don't think this banter's going anywhere. I don't think this banter's going anywhere. We haven't, got the, we, just, <laughs> we haven't got the energy for like, we can't <laughs> like feign excitement in the sort of mundanity of our sort of chat. Uh, the vegan like, cheese. Yeah. <laughs> Tell you what, Sometimes Dan. like the, the, the pre-podcast banter is designed to sort of like soften people up for then we're going to hit them with all the sort of boring, <laughs> like, but like, I don't know. I think, there's I nothing, think... There's nothing boring in this episode. There, whoa, it's, there is not. It's just one big hit after another. Okay. We're hyped and we can't, like, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm close to standing up. I'm close to standing up. Long-time listeners will know, uh, old heads, one might say, that uh, uh, Dan and I, since a very early episode, have been teasing a book called The Book. Mm. Um, and when I say Dan and I, it's mainly just it's been just me. Junk. It's just junk. <laughs> I read this book uh, last summer. Kind of on a whim, uh, I saw it in a local bookshop, and I was like, yeah, I'll pick that up. That looks interesting. The book is The Devil's Chessboard, which is kind of a lame name, I'll be honest. Uh-huh. Um, and it's written by a guy named David Talbot. Um, and it is ostensibly, at least the bit that we're reading right now, we're not reading all of it because there's just too much in it, but ostensibly it's history of the CIA, but... I think kind of what it winds up being is a biography of Alan Dulles. Yeah, I keep calling it a biography of the CIA. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. It's it's that story of like maybe like the organizations that would go on to become the CIA up to, I don't know, 1963 maybe? We'll just use that as an end date. Yeah, yeah, why not? Arbitrary <laughs> date. Maybe like November. I don't know. <laughs> um, but so yeah, early CIA years and how that famed institution has gone on to become... Um, 
one of the worst, I suppose. And and its role in world history. Uh-huh. Um, but really, <laughs> this book just serves as like a collection of nuggets that are, just blow your mind. And that's why I love it. Yeah, so. I mean, it's it's really wonderfully written. And it sort of like develops all of these. It's just <laughs> developing a sort of meta narrative whilst also introducing this cast of scoundrels. Yes. And then sort of drip feeding to you um, nuggets of their biographies, which reveal them to themselves to be. Yeah, the most, the most duplicitous, the most deranged in some cases, Mm. the most psychopathic, yes, the most amoral, Mm -hmm. um, preach, just collection of the people you could ever, yeah, fear to encounter. Yes, yes, not good dudes. I think we can say. Um, I mean. Oh, I, yeah. Wow. How do we start? I've been wanting to talk about this book for a long time and I finally forced Dan to read it. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to read up until or we're going to talk about up until the chapter, I believe, called <laughs> is it scoundrel time? Yeah, well, maybe we'll do the scoundrel time. I read a little bit further after that. But okay. yeah, it's basically up until sort of like uh, 52 mm. um, at, with the sort of like the electoral victory of Eisenhower, that yeah. Eisenhower Nixon. Yeah. Um, Ticket. Ticket. I love I love that the chapter on Nixon is just simply called Scoundrel Time. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's so good. Okay. Don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to figure out how to come at this. All right. Because it is a bit of like a book when you're like, hey, I'm reading a book on CIA history. Some, you know, maybe some alarm bells go off, especially in part three, which we're not going to talk about. We're not going to talk about part three yet. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But... I think Dan and I have actually had some conversations on how to approach this book, why we're reading it, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a couple things become apparent. I mean, I actually think the thing that this pairs best with that we've read so far is the Mike Davis. And we'll talk about yes, why in a bit, yeah. because you can definitely do a bit of a class analysis with this book or just about class interests. But also, I think we're interesting and interested in kind of going after the question of like, what is a conspiracy theory? Because you hear a lot of libs kind of clump Everything under the sun is a conspiracy theory if it's not the official narrative, right? And I mean, like, Dan and I are obviously not QAnon people. We're not, like, Sandy Hook was fake news people. Uh, But we do kind of want to maybe separate the wheat from the chaff a bit when it comes to um, our lovely CIA beautiful boys. Um, And so I think we're going to do our best to treat this as a history and... See what we come away thinking. <laughs> See. Quite, yeah, 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 yeah. I think, yeah, you're, you're quite right to set it up in that manner. Mm. Um, <laughs> one could certainly look at this book and this history, um, particularly the way this book is written to sensationalize to some extent, to, mm. to draw out or to, to highlight some of the, the types of stories that it highlights kind of thing and the kind of narratives it's attempting to weave. Yeah. Certainly does... Um, is designed to appeal to sort of like a conspiracy narrative to some extent, and yeah. But um, and and we are going to go there. <laughs> We're so so oh. and also bear with us and um, give us give us, I guess give us a bit of space in the sense of like, <laughs> yeah. As Jack says, we don't quite know. We we're, we'd like to stop sort of. We'd like to spend some time passing out what is and isn't a conspiracy theory, mm. how they function, mm. and sort of. How we intend to regard them, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but also, 
we're gonna have some fun we're gonna have some goddamn like, fun there's some there's that's some for sure sort of third eyes wide open Ooh. kind of like um yeah 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 and it's funny right because i mean there is also a section of the left that just is basically like everything is cia yeah and i think that it is or the this, fbi yeah, the FBI, CIA. <laughs> I mean, I think that the, I'm half joking. I'm half not. Um, I think that this book could use an analysis that is a little bit more. I dare say it, Dan. Maybe Marxist. Uh-huh. Um, I'll let you know when I find some people who can do that. But we'll do our best. Um, okay. So no further ado, Dan. Should we just should we just both feet jump in? So this book. We're not going to start with the introduction. <laughs> We're not going to go there yet because introduction teases part three and we don't want to go there quite yet. Um, let's start off by talking about this fellow, Alan Dulles. Mm-hmm. Um, every blue-blooded American has at least heard of or flown in and out of Dulles International Airport at least once. Uh, that's DC, I think. Mm-hmm. I've been there, but I don't remember if it's DC. Uh, whatever. It's which, on the East Which Coast. Dulles is it named for? It is not named after Alan Dulles, uh-huh. actually. It is named after his brother, John Foster Dulles. Uh-huh. Um, so these fellas, these lovable fellas, Dan, they, I suppose that we should begin to frame this conversation as their corporate lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. They work for a law firm called Sullivan Cromwell, um, in between the two world wars. Okay. Um, John Foster Dulles is a bit more of a statesman. He's kind of remembered as being a, like behind the scenes. He was, um, was he secretary of state? I believe. Secretary of state for Eisenhower. Yeah. 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 But also just like a, a sort of like Republican grandee. Yeah. Uh, with a specialization in foreign affairs in anti-communism preceding that yeah quite heavy anti-communism he was like the anti-communist dude um Uh eventually although perhaps overshadowed by one person yeah (laughs) (laughs) think of one or two notable people who yeah yeah yeah. one yeah one deranged anti-communist one very drunk man yeah (laughs) well one very drunk anti-communist but i'm thinking i'm thinking of uh, alan dulles was the first to Mm really start um sounding a slightly deranged warning horn for yes um fear of the soviet union fear of the soviet union Fe- with, like, domino fear theory of bullshit communist influence yeah. inside Florida the united Asian. states but also across western europe exactly um a bug which was caught by his brother john mm. foster mm. and then the country uh quite yeah. so i think yeah i think it's important to frame this i mean when alan dulles kind of enters the historical narrative and in some kind of meaningful ways after world war one um but which time he's actually already kind of old right and as i say he's working for this wall street corporate law firm called um sullivan and cromwell sullivan eh, <laughs> Sullivan, and cromwell. <laughs> sullivan and cromwell um Jack just threw up a little bit well <laughs> The Sullivan and Cromwell would go on to represent some of the most reprehensible activities known to man. Mm-hmm. But I think before we get to that, I've got to set it up just a little bit more. All right. So a little bit, little bit of a history lesson, Dan. And uh, ooh, I, might, I might go off here a little bit. I might have to go <laughs> off. You have my blessing. <laughs> God bless. <laughs> so as we all know, we've all seen the photos after World War I of um, German uh, families um, you know, you've seen photos of, like, little kids building dollhouses out of, like, stacks of Deutschmarks, right? And we've seen photos of people, like, the Deutschmark was so useless because of inflation inflation that, you know, people would, like, be using it to, like, as wallpaper in their houses, right? Using it for insulation. People's whole life savings were gone uh, just to basically, like, pay for some food, pay for a meal. And the reason that that happened is because of a little thing, Dan, known as 
the Treaty of Versailles, mm-hmm. all right? In the Treaty of Versailles, mm-hmm. <laughs> I found out about this the other day, and this blew my mind. There's something called the War Guilt Clause, all right? That is Article 231. And this is kind of infamous, and I mean, like, at least in American schools, you learn a little bit about this, um, because it was something that was kind of put in a little bit, maybe not last minute, but as a bit of a maybe an afterthought. And what it did was it said that Germany, it's just a couple sentences, and it said that Germany was responsible for all of the assets lost by the Allies during the entire war. And they would go on to basically, like, put a number on this, which was astronomical, completely baffling, right? It was like a number, I think probably if you did it in today's money, it would probably be like in the billions of dollars, right? It was something that, like, Germany probably wasn't about to be able to repay. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this opened up uh, uh, quite a bit of business opportunities for Americans, right? Because German investors were freaking out because their investments just were worth absolutely nothing because they had to pay back this absolutely astronomical sum. I think actually at one point our good uh, friend of the podcast, uh, John Maynard Keynes, basically saw that and was like, whoa, okay, this is impossible. Why are we making Germany pay back this much money to say nothing of like whose fault the war was? Not to say that it wasn't Germany's, but like it was kind of everybody's fault. Mm-hmm. It was a bit of an imperialist war. Um but American robber barons had a bit of a plan, Dan. And these were like old school robber barons, right? These were like the Morgans, the, uh, uh, you know, the Goulds. Maybe not the Goulds, but like people like that, right? People who actually use the phrase robber barons. People who would, this is like the last generation of people who would, in America, who would just straight up send Pinkertons in to just like murder union guys when they were striking, right? They had a plan. they handed that role off to uh, official <laughs> state agents. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um... They had a plan, Dan, and I'm going to actually let David Talbot explain what this was, because he explains this plan from the point of view of Sullivan and Cromwell, who were representing a lot of these corporate interests, okay? So, he says, Dulles, and here he means Alan Dulles, knew many of the central players in the secretive Swiss financial milieu because he and his brother had worked with them as clients or business partners before the war. Sullivan and Cromwell, the Dulles brothers' Wall Street law firm, was at the center of an intricate international network of banks, investment firms, and industrial conglomerates that rebuilt Germany after World War I. And when he says rebuilt here, what he basically means is like stealing these investments for pennies and then basically, you know, profiting off of that, helping to rebuild. Mm-hmm. Foster, the law firm's top executive, grew skilled at structuring the complex merry-go-round of transactions that funneled massive U.S. investments into German industrial giants like IG Farben, Chemical Conglomerate, and Krupp Steel. Uh, Anybody knows anything about World War II knows that IG Farben, they were uh, the people who made Zyklon B, among other things, which is the gas that was used in the uh, concentration camps. And Krupp Steel, of course, built basically all of the... um, you know, panzers and things like that, all of, the, all of the war materials. The profits generated by these investments then flowed to France and Britain in the form of war reparations and then back to the United States to pay off war loans. So I think that's that basically sets up all of this story because what's basically happening here is American private investors, old school robber baron guys are going, oh, we can make a killing off of this if we buy this investment for really, really cheap, invest heavily in Germany, and then... Um, allow those profits to be sent back to France and Britain in the form of war reparations. And then basically because the United States uh, loaned money to the UK and to France and everybody, uh, that money would then be sent back to the United States to pay off war loans. 
So I think that's something that's really, really important to note. And something that I think that Talbot doesn't get into here is the idea of like, un perhaps there's a second reason why these uh, uh, corporate robber barons were doing this, why these American people are doing this. And Dan, I hate to say it, but I think it might have been to stop communism. <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of these people knew which way the winds were blowing. Um, and they perhaps... You know, there was a bit of a red scare going on in the United States at the time. Everybody was kind of like, whoa. This is in the 30s, you mean? Kind of right after World War One, the 20s and the 30s. Uh -huh. Oh, um, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I kind of tend to see this as obviously just a way to make an insane amount of money. But through directly investing in companies like Krupp and IG Farben, it becomes pretty apparent that there was also the aim of building up a authoritarian state, more or less, Um to stop communism because there was really like that was the way that it was going to have to happen uh -huh. and that kind of, obviously you know that kind of happened it kind of didn't obviously the soviets would be the ones to defeat the nazis but like at the same time didn't spread past east germany um so i think that's just like a long-winded way of saying that uh well i suppose i should also say that none of this stopped during the war um these people were all still playing both sides and if you'd like me to <laughs> rattle off a quick list, actually, of U.S. companies that were involved with Sullivan and Cromwell that Dulles helped, um, that actually worked directly with the Nazis during World War II. And Dan, uh, let me know if you know any of, any of these companies. Yeah, so let me know if you recognize yeah. any of these names. Let me just say, I doubt any of these are still around because yeah, there's yeah. no way they could be. No, there's no, no way they surely, could be supplied. Surely they got what was coming to them, right? Like all of this was revealed. Of course. Yeah. As soon as the full extent of the Nazi crimes was discovered, <laughs> and they, there you was know, a they sort of great purge of sort of like. <laughs> and they popped open the hoods of the Nazi uh, trucks and the tanks, and they saw Ford sitting there, and they're like, <laughs> "That must be a different Ford." Yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah, I just said Ford was one of these people that was working with the Nazis uh, uh, to build up directly. Base. He was working directly with Hitler. Henry Ford. Uh, you, don't, oh, you mean actually Henry, actually Ford, Henry Ford Motor Company? Ford, actually, actually Henry Ford. And Ford Motor Company. Yeah, they sure, produced but... military vehicles for the Nazis and also uh, used forced concentration camp labor. They wouldn't be the only ones. Mm -hmm. There was also Chase Bank, who sold war bonds to the Germans. There was IBM, and I find this one particularly mm -hmm. disgusting. They created the punch cards and the computing software that the Nazis used for their ethnic censuses to send people to concentration camps. Coca-Cola, this one's actually kind of particularly funny, they, <laughs> before the war, were creating, and just right after the beginning of the war, were... Oh, it was the stuff, it? Yeah, yeah. The, I didn't know about this. No, really? Okay. They were yeah, creating, uh, or they were just, you know, selling um, Coca-Cola to the Nazi army, and then the American government was like, please don't do that. We keep finding Coke cans in these goddamn German camps. And so they just made Fanta yeah. to be their, like, German wing to keep selling fucking soft drinks to the Nazis. I had no idea about that. That blew my mind. I mean, uh, it's gross to think that a, a soft drinks company could be central to, like, um, <laughs> American global capitalist reach. <laughs> but it also makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also like, of course. Um, there was also GM, who gave raw materials to the Nazi war effort. There was Kodak, who not only was making film... Uh, but also they're making like detonators and things like that in their um, factories. There was Dow Chemicals who straight up was just giving. Let me tell you something, Dan. I've never been to Germany, but I don't picture it as a very oil rich nation. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think they had enough oil to just yeah. do what they Coal, did. Coal maybe, but. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Dow gave the Nazis uh, the technology to refine oil, to make it into gasoline. And then when they found out that they couldn't just do that, uh, uh, they basically started just working directly with IG Farben and other people like that. 
Um, there was Standard Oil, who for the entire war uh, was supplying something called tetraethyl lead, which is uh, vital to the operation of the engines in all of the planes in the Luftwaffe, and without it, they uh, wouldn't have been able to have an air force. So it's cool to know that Standard Oil could have stopped the war whenever they wanted, but they didn't, mm-hmm. of course, because they're making a shit ton of money on both sides. Um, and I should also mention that there was one... Uh, I don't really understand what these companies do. It, like when you're in New York and you just see like a large building and it just has several names on the front. I guess it's a law firm. I guess it does a bunch of things. There was something called Brown Brothers Herring. All right, Dan. Um, and this was... The American front company for a guy named Fritz Th- Thyssen? Thyssen? I don't know. I wrote it down. I can't even read my own handwriting. Thyssen. Thyssen. Um, he was known as the Nazis uh, financier. He funded Hitler's ride to power. He was the, basically the money guy. And Brown Brothers Harriman was the American front for that company that set up front companies so that Americans could donate money to the Nazis. Um, all of those companies obviously still around. Brown Brothers Harriman as well. You might not know about them, but they're still hanging about. So I guess that's that's the first part of the story, right? Is American involvement with the Nazis, and when you think about World War II, as you know, someone like Howard Zinn did, where he's like, "God damn it, I'm gonna go fight some fascists." Mm-hmm. I'm a, mm-hmm. I hesitate to maybe not call him a commie, but he was commie adjacent, and he was someone who's like, "I'm gonna go kill some goddamn fascists in the name of the United States." Um, planes he was flying, the cars he was driving, the cars that his German counterparts were flying whatever you do with a car, I mean, drive a car, planes that were flying, all being made by American companies or at least with technology by American companies. Um, and Alan Dulles was at the center of it with Sullivan and Cromwell. Mm-hmm. So that's the first bit of my spiel. Mm-hmm. Let me just wrap it up for you real quick, Dan. That war guilt clause that I mentioned. I'll give you two guesses, Dan, as to who wrote that clause. <laughs> and I'll tell you... I'll tell you, Dan, it was not Alan Dulles. Uh-huh, uh-huh, Who's uh-huh. your second guess? <laughs> was it one John Foster? It was fucking John Foster Dulles. The guy who would go on to become the Secretary of State for Eisenhower was at the center of all of this money moving around and funding the Nazi war effort and specifically wrote the War Guilt Clause to open up Germany to American investment. I read that and my mind was just, my third eye just like burst from my head. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, I think one thing we're going to learn um, through this book <laughs> is that whenever there's something dastardly going on, you just have to uh, have a look under the nearest rock and yep. there will be a Dulles. There will be a Dulles or there will be a fucking brown brother or a some Harryman. representative of the Dulles is one of their agents of some sort of other, yeah. probably a future president yes hanging around somewhere nearby that's the one thing that i discovered from this i mean it should have been totally obvious to me but as an outsider to american politics like i know some of these names of people who Hmm. have some period of time where their actions are um connected with some degree of infamy sure but really if you look at the biography of these people like it's infamy all the way down it is just like at any point in their career it's just the same kind of like um yeah just dastardly activity yeah absolutely I mean, it's it's funny, right? Because I think that one of the things that we're also looking at in this is like, well, what use is all of this to some kind of left, yeah. right? What use is this history to the left? Um, I'm of the mind, obviously, that it's uh, quite a lot of use. We can kind of talk about that later once we get more of the story. But I mean, like, if you're to be exposed to all of this in an apolitical way, you're going to wind up at best, I think, well, at best, you're going to become a communist, but that's not a lot of yeah. people. You're going to become one of these, like, um, 
kind of like 1% is bad people. Because you kind of look at this and you go, oh my God, it was just all the same people. Alan Dulles's reign went from like the end of World War I all the way up until like the 60s. And you, it's really easy to just go, this isn't a function of the system. This mm -hmm. isn't the system operating as it should. This mm -hmm. is an anomaly, right? And so I think that like one of the important things that we need to keep in mind when we're looking at this is like, really kind of trying to shape the narrative for what it is, is that this is the system operating exactly as it should. Yeah. And that after World War One, which was maybe you could say the last kind of gasp of like an imperial royalist or maybe just aristocratic uh, thing, that the bourgeoisie came in and they were like, fucking, wait a minute, World War One, if we did that again, we could all make a ton of money. And they did. And they were playing both sides and it worked like a dream. Yeah, you're quite right to highlight that because we are really at risk of falling to the trap of becoming very fixated on a few names and a few actors. And one thing we should bear in mind is to always look for what is their class interest? What what collection of capital do they represent? Because mm. as you say, like these are representatives of the sort of East Coast banking elite. Um, and we, I mean, we've discovered other factions of capitalism sort of mm. vying for power in, uh, in American politics in other readings that we've done. Absolutely, um, yeah. So yeah, it's all that's always the question. Like, what is, what is, what is their, uh, what's the class basis of what's incentivizing them to take the actions that they're doing? But mm. I mean, particularly, it's it speaks to something that we. I mean, I'm just about, <laughs> <laughs> here. I am suggesting that we should focus on their class interests and not the persons involved, and then I begin to speak about the people involved immediately. Because <laughs> it's, it's a good story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But what I was going to say was. Something about the character of these people is that they appear to represent... They, I mean, they will champion certain ideologies and certain political positions. Mm. But what stands behind that in most cases seems to be a strong amoral core. Yeah. Oh, like sure, really yeah. all they're interested in is their own interest and the financial interests that they represent. Mm. Um any amount of sort of vociferous anti-communism, say, mm. will turn around immediately and protect anybody who might at one point fall foul of um, the sort of American witch hunt for communists in the 40s and 50s. Sure. And these characters will protect them because they have some kind of connection to them, some type of interest, mm. blah, 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 kind of thing. Mm. Um, and it's the same with like Dulles's actions well here we are prior to world war one i'm sort of transitioning us into world war one I. I speak of alan dillis here kind of thing like sure. the degree to which he stifled the exposure of the true extent and scale of the holocaust the true degree to which yeah. he hid that mm. um wasn't motivated by some kind of like underlying narcissism not that mm. he necessarily like disagreed i'm sure mm -hmm. he wasn't uh anti-semite there was one bit, though, where he was, he, he was like, oh, I did read an interesting book today called Protocols of the Elder of Zion. And it's just like, oh, my God. I'd forgotten about that. And I think I would imagine that you would like to hinge some amounts of uh, <laughs> some or to hang off of that some amounts of uh, anti-Semitism, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. But yeah, what seems to be the central part of their character is just like just self-interest and class interest Absolutely. through and through. And it's, 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 it's funny, right? Because I've been trying to come up with a way of like at this time period 
designating the Eastern, like, Wall Street banking establishment. I sh well, I should say financial establishment. Um, and it at that time, and we've seen this kind of fall apart when we, around the kind of, like, Reagan time, where Mike Davis talks about, like, the Sunbelt versus the defense industry, all these new industries popping up to support him. This just kind of seems like the biggest of the big bourgeoisie. And I know that that's kind of, like, crass to say, but it's like... I get the feeling that these, not only can you say that just because of the amounts of money that they were producing, right? And that these were like the robber barons of the day. But like, I get the feeling that these people, this is where the charade of anti-communism stopped being anything other than that's a direct threat to my class interests. Mm -hmm. And they understood that. Maybe if you, if you go down a couple rungs on the bourgeoisie, like, I don't know, like, you know, like uh, someone who owns like maybe like the McDonald's guy. Was, I don't know anything about him. But uh, like if he had any kind of anti-communist sympathies, it probably would have been more along the lines of like hysteria. Like, yeah. oh, my God, they're here to destroy our freedom. These people knew that that wasn't the case. They knew that it was purely just business interests. And we'll get to that kind of when we talk about um, what Alan Dulles did to the entire planet. But, um, you know, these people knew what they were doing and they were acting directly in their class interests very consciously. And spinning this myth of anti-communism as being bad. And, you know, it's all this horrible stuff. So I suppose that's kind of why I say the biggest of the big bourgeoisie. Like, these were, like, the grand, the, the big-ass bourgeoisie. You know uh -huh. what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah, there's one thing. I mean, I don't know where this is going to go necessarily. One thing <laughs> I've sort of spoke to you in the week about, uh, looking back to that episode that we did on Davis. What's it called? The New Rights Road to, Rise, New Road Rights to Power? New Rights Road to Power, yeah. Um, when we were sort of juxtaposing the... Uh, sort of Sunbelt capitalists in the 70s that mm. would eventually, well, sort of 60s and 70s that would eventually result in the Reagan presidency um, and them being a group who unseated this, uh, the sort of Eastern establishment as it mm. was normally referred. Mm. And from that reading, I got the impression that the Eastern establishment was to some degree or other like at least... Um, mild defenders of the sort of FDR legacy and the New Oof. Deal legacy kind of thing. Yeah. Um, what shocked me about this, and we'll get onto it later, I suppose, was the degree to which it was after 45. Like, mm. it was almost like an all-out pitch battle Absolutely. between the FDR legacy and this group that we're introducing now kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The people around this sort of financial elite around the Dulleses, people that were associated with the sort of, uh, with Eisenhower as well. Mm. Yeah, because we hear about and they, they, I mean, that. I mean, they outplayed, the, they played the situation shockingly well. Yeah. Um, and so I'm really thoroughly sort of eviscerated any of the, any of the sort of like legacy, the lasting legacy of sure. FDR. But sure. we'll get onto that. Part. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good point because I think that we hear a, the phrase New Deal consensus tossed around a lot. Yeah. But all that really was was popular support for the New Deal policies. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, obviously, there were New Dealers, yeah. ardent New Dealers yeah, in public I, I guess office. It would seem like, like any amount of New Deal consensus was basically a gradual unpicking rather than a sort of like yeah. swift decapitation. Kind of Although it actually was quite a swift decapitation. Yeah, it was, it was pretty quick. Because well, I mean, certain, char certain people yeah. got swiftly, were swiftly gotten rid of. I mean, perhaps that was the strategy, right? You get rid of certain influential people and then you gradually erode... Uh, the, the public's commitment to it after you've gotten rid of the sort of like mm. key advocates, I suppose. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there were definitely anti-New Dealers who benefited from the New Deal as well. So, I mean, yep. you know, and like better infrastructure is, way. Hey, that's good for us. We, our trucks can go places, you know what I mean? Um, so, 
It is, I mean, it's a bit of both because it seems extremely quick. I mean, I think that the New Deal consensus, we build it up as something big because it was relatively recently in our history. Yeah. But it's like from 1945 into what, Reagan? If that's where you want to end it, but like mm -hmm. really Nixon, like, uh, -uh. Yeah. you know what I mean? Although Nixon today, sadly, would be a pretty progressive Democrat yeah. in, some, <laughs> in some respects. Yeah. So let's, let's talk more about that idea. I'm going to read again um, from the Talbot. And this is, to set this up a little bit, this is... Um, Talbot trying to explain the degree to which, even as the New Deal was in place, even as FDR was in power, just how under attack it was, right? Mm -hmm. And so a fellow named Henry Morgenthau, who was a bit of a New Dealer fella, wheeler and dealer, um, goes to go see FDR to basically say, um, some bad things are going to happen, maybe to you, but just to like all of us New Dealers, if we don't do something about these people who are actively plotting against you, right? So Talbot says, in April 1945, Henry Morgenthau went down to the presidential retreat in Warm Springs, Georgia, where FDR was convalescing, to urge him to directly confront the State Department cabal that seemed hell-bent on appeasing the country's German enemies and antagonizing its Soviet allies. Sitting down for cocktails with the president, Morgenthau was shaken by the president's, quote, very haggard appearance. His hands shook so that he started to knock the glasses over. I found his memory bad, and he was constantly confusing names, end quote. After drinks and dinner, Roosevelt seemed to rally, and, asked, and he asked Morgenthau what he had in mind. The Treasury Secretary told him that it was time to, quote, break the State Department and replace the old guard with loyal New Dealers, end quote. FDR assured Morgenthau that he was with him 100%. The next afternoon, April 12th, Roosevelt died after suffering a massive cerebral hemorrhage. Hate to laugh at the guy, but like, <laughs> oh, that sucks. Damn, we were that close. Let's, as we like to do, let's mm -hmm. do a little alternative history mm -hmm. is there any world where morgenthau's plan would have been successful where it might have bought the new deal some time but i think that we really underestimate the degree that these uh big bourgeoisies fellas wanted fdr gone and wanted the new deal gone in 1945 like we were still fighting the nazis and they're like eh, the nazis what have they done you mm -hmm. know what i mean um i have a hard time believing that anything could Different have would have that. happened. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't. Obviously, FDR died, but, like, that plan died with him. So. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. I mean, there are... There are um, I suppose areas in this book where it's hinted at that it could quite easily have been the dullest group of, of sort of... Sure. This, this, this cabal of people who ended up on trial in the 40s as a result, or the late forties, as a result of their um, dealings, de <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say dealings with the Nazis, but <laughs> yeah, same thing. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> but I don't know whether I get more the impression it's kind of like a, a by rights thing mm. than a, an actual plausible series of events that that could have come about. Sure. I suppose. Sure. Yeah, I mean, if we if we take it as a systemic problem, the answer is no. <laughs> it wouldn't it would fdr couldn't have just gone we're gonna have a softer version of capitalism baby and then not expect people you know capitalists <laughs> to not be like uh no yeah, yeah 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 but it's it is it was, it was shocking to me looking over this period of time one i mean i, I mean it made good fodder for the sort of like so socialist and communist well the communist witch hunts of the mm. the, the late 40s and early 50s the fact that uh, so many people who were sort of democratic politicians or um, or, or took up significant positions in the FDR administration were people who had connections to 
the Socialist Party who had sure. avowed sort of socialist connections mm. had like, I mean, by contemporary um, oh, yeah. American standards, like had real legitimate left-wing credentials. I mean, the person I have in mind is Jerry Voorhees, right? Who mm. is the person who we'll come on to in a little while who, yeah. um, who's, whose seat Nixon took from him uh, in 46. Um, but he's he's someone who was like advocating for sort of quite sweeping nationalizations, advocating for a minimum wage. Uh, yeah, nationalization as well as like seeking to expose some of these sort of like what you've just described as treasonous activities. Nazis. American Nazis. <laughs> some of these American Nazis. <laughs> um, uh, someone who was a committed Democrat, but somebody who had been in the Socialist Party. And it's something to overlook when you look at contemporary America or the last half century of American history, I suppose, that there was this period of time where there was significant overlap between the Democrats and um, sort of representatives of labor, I suppose. Sure. So to discount, I guess to discount that, at least as a political force oh, that sure. had some weight, um, would be premature perhaps. Mm. But I mean, obviously what the, what the, what the long-term alternate scenario may have been, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe, Maybe the U.S. might have ended up with a slightly more comprehensive healthcare system than it currently has at the moment. I mean, that's what Nixon wanted, so probably. Well, not. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, the, um, so um, perhaps the New Deal legacy may have been more significant than it was in terms of government, more extensive government programs that might have been brought into existence, kind of thing. Sure. But you're entirely right to say that, like, it would have suffered the same decline that social democracy suffered yeah. anywhere in the world, I suppose. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, Talbot is very quick. Maybe it's just because he's a bit of a lib, but he's very quick to be like, Voorhees wasn't a communist, though. He wasn't a yeah. communist. Sure, he was in the Socialist Party, but he's, you know, hey, come on now. He wanted to nationalize things. That's it. Um, yeah, there's a, uh, the point in time when he uses the phrase hardcore communist. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, 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 which is clearly coming from someone who, like, doesn't have any... I mean, like, God bless him and, like... Um, I guess fair enough, anybody, or maybe not. God bless him. Like God bless anybody who 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 manages to fill their brains with the necessary terminology to differentiate different yeah. types of communists in a meaningful way, and continue to remain sane and willing to engage with like politics in any meaningful way. What do, What do you think old hardcore communist means? Do you think that means like? Council communist, or he's just like <laughs> he's in the SPD. Yeah, we actually look hardcore. at the footnote. By footnote, I actually by hardcore communist, I actually mean yeah, yeah, <laughs> a particular subset of council communists who adhere to a certain set of principles between thirty-five and forty-five. <laughs> Not to be amazing. mistaken by the Italian <laughs> yeah. council communists, or those fucking who were <laughs> who were effectively like sub-Leninist. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh -huh. No, I don't think there's any kind of that degree of nuance. Yeah. Um, I'll, let me hit you with my, probably what's going to be my last quote of the day, which is um, FDR talking with some person. But then um, Talbot goes on to talk about somebody named Mills, who's C. Wright Mills, who wrote a pretty influential book called The Power Elite, which is an attempt at a class analysis from someone who was not a communist. Um and that goes about as well as you think. But it, I, from what I can gather, it's a book that really tries to expose um, the movers and shakers of the United States who aren't elected and who are private people, right? So it starts out with a quote from FDR. It says, the real truth FDR wrote to Colonel Edward M. House, President Wilson's close advisor, 
is, as you and I know, that a financial element in the larger centers has owned the government ever since the days of Andrew Jackson, end quote. For a brief period during the widespread devastation of the 1930s, the New Deal was able to challenge this plutocracy, as Roosevelt called it. Which, like, come on, Roosevelt, you're a bit of a, come on now. The Roosevelt presidency did not dismantle the power elite, Mills later wrote, quote, but it did create within the political arena, as well as in the corporate world itself, competing centers of powers that challenged those of the corporate directors. And I think, I think that's kind of what we're getting at, right? So it's like, okay, if FDR didn't just die uh, immediately after that conversation, there definitely would have been alternate um, centers of power. And I mean, like, you know, again, as we've talked about, everybody who was so excited about Sanders, it was the same thing, but on a much smaller scale, right? It's like, just get some kind of class consciousness going, right? I mean, it's interesting to put yourself in someone's mindset back then in the 30s as the New Deal was, you know, going. Like, how did they perceive of history? You know what I mean? How did they perceive of the word Bolshevik? If you were like a union guy working at the docks in Seattle, like, how did you perceive of the word Bolshe? How did you perceive of the Red Scare of the 1910s and the 1920s? Um, it's interesting because from what I can gather, the American labor movement at that time was so reticent to be militant in a big way, right? I'm not sure what that speaks to. I, I don't think I could speak to that. But I mean, it's it's just strange because it's like these people were willing to put their lives on the line to like defend their families against Pinkertons. But they, I don't know. Obviously, there were communists back then. But like trying to put yourself in that mindset is very difficult. And I don't want to apply historical hindsight, you know, so... It, yeah, it's yeah, an interesting question to which I do not really have an answer. Mm. Um, you do kind of get the impression that a lot of, well, obviously, like the the effects and the aftermath of the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression were like catastrophic for America. Sure. And I think that you get the impression that like um, there was a great fear that like American society was really big and into uh, fracture and was really riven by this. Mm. Um, and you really get, I, I sort of got the impression that FDR and the New Deal was an effort to hold the country together sure, almost. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and obviously, like, organized labor was heavily involved in that. But what I don't really know is what other sort of like grassroots movement there was for that. I don't really know mm. how big the socialist and communist parties were. I don't really know what their degree of influence was. I don't know whether the, like, something like the IWW was still in existence yeah, and on what yeah. level of strength it had and sort of. To what to what extent it um, there was a an active working class movement that wasn't just a mass of people and their sort of formal representatives mm. in government and in sort of tr the trade unions kind of thing. Mm. Um, is that the kind of like question you were pushing after? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know of one example. There were pretty massive strikes in around this time period in Seattle on the docks. That's why I brought that up. And um, there was. At one point, I forget exactly where I read this, but at one point there was a dock worker who was interviewed by a paper who said, 99% of us can agree that the system has to change, so we can't keep doing things like this, but none of us can agree on what that means. If that means militancy, if that means uh, reforms, if that means joining a party, if that means not having a party, and it just kind of fizzled out from there into, mm -hmm. oh, okay, we'll give you better working hours. You know what I mean? Um, I suppose all that is to say, time period we should know more about. Mm, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, let me hit you with something else, Dan. We talk about how, you know, we throw around this word Nazi, all right? We uh -huh. throw around this word fascist when we're talking uh -huh. about these people, the Herbert Walkers, the Harrymans, the Bushes, which let's not get it twisted. Prescott Bush, Nazi. Uh -huh. um, 
a lot of people probably know about this, but there was a fella named Smedley Butler, all right? And Smedley Butler was perhaps, uh, I think he's always described as like the most decorated American soldier of all time, whatever the hell that means, I kind of don't really care. Well-respected guy. He fought in Cuba, sadly. He uh, fought in probably some other places he shouldn't have fought. Might have fought in Mexico, I don't know. Um, really respected guy. He was kind of like, <laughs> he, was, he was like the mad dog of his time, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Supposedly, at one point, and when I say supposedly, I mean definitely, he was approached by... <laughs> when I say allegedly, I mean... Definitely. When I say allegedly, I mean he was <laughs> approached by Prescott Bush specifically <laughs> to um, put together a group, a very large group of disaffected World War I veterans who were understandably very angry about the way the, com- the country that they had returned to. And this was a time when people were marching on Washington and sitting in the National Mall and being like, I have no house, I have no food. Everything is horrible. We need a change. Um, and supposedly he was approached by a group of big, big capitalists. It's kind of implied that this was the Bushes, the DuPonts, all the, all the good folks, um, to take this group of disaffected veterans, if he could, march on Washington under the pretense of, oh, FDR is too sick. Get him out of here. We need someone strong. We need a smedley butler. Put him in place ostensibly as a president and allow these kind of like big capitalists to rule um, in the shadows, I guess, so to speak, basically to implement uh, what would probably have gone on to be a Hitler-friendly nation. Um, Smedley Butler goes, he like plays along for as long as he can, being like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And then he goes to Congress and he's like, this is what's happened. This is insane. You guys need to arrest all of these people right now. Otherwise, there's going to be a fascist coup. Uh they listen to him. The case gets shut down. Nothing ever happens. Nobody ever gets arrested. And then Smedley Butler goes out and is like, records himself and is like, this is exactly what happened. I was approached. There was about to be a fascist takeover. And then he goes on some kind of BS about like, as long as we have free speech, this country will be all right. Anyway, um, when we talk about like American capitalists selling stuff to Nazis and playing both sides, that's kind of one thing. But obviously, this is something completely different, right? I mean, this was capitalists making an attempt at making the United States fascist. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it's funny, right? Because this is something that a lot of libs will kind of brush away as being like, well, you know, since Congress never did anything about it, it's probably just crazy Smiley Butler, probably, you know, who knows? But like, th- this is something that, I don't know, <laughs> I feel like... The question that we're going to answer when we talk about this book going forward is, why did they not try it again? And I think that the answer is, um, they they didn't need to. (laughs) It was just that they didn't need to, because they're able to find a way to get everything that they wanted, um, run the world as basically just one big business, and regime change all over the place, at home and abroad, Mm -hmm. um, without resorting to this kind of like literal coup. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a pretty vital part of history that the left eh, maybe could use a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, I didn't, I didn't know anything about that. You've reminded me of something I remember reading in the early sections of this book, which I haven't gone back and read since. Oh. Um, but there is, um, there is a point in this book, I'm fairly sure, where um, the author is discussing the kind of like general anti-semitic sentiments of mm. various countries and he's basically making the point there was nothing particularly new unique about the level sort of like anti-semitism or the, the potential to inflame anti-semitic sentiments in 
the United States was no different to yeah. the potential to do that in, in Nazi Germany kind sure. of thing. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think ra- really what he's hinting at is in the minds of this certain selection of the elite, really. Mm. Um, one of the things that um, has been made quite apparent to me is that we shouldn't imagine at this period of time national capitals or capitalist institutions or co- collections of capitalists existing within certain national borders it wasn't yeah. so it wasn't Absolutely. one capital against another capital located in a set of national borders obviously the connections were a lot more complicated mm. and i think obviously i mean it, it would be the most gro- grotesque like pro-american rhetoric to say <laughs> anything counter to what i'm about to say but um to imagine that there was some kind of like virtuous united states against some sort of like oh absolutely paragon of evil nazi germany obviously what happened in nazi germany was the pinnacle of evil as i mm-hmm. can imagine it but um mm-hmm. there was no virtuous uh yeah counterpoint to that <laughs> sure absolutely i mean i would like to give people obviously like the howard zins of the world and even just like your friendly like you know grandpa who went to war they thought that absolutely they were fighting fascism yeah. and good for them. I mean, hell yeah, go fight fascism. That rocks. But like the truth is that, you know, when you play, people are just playing both sides. And I mean, like what you're totally right to say that there's this international approach to um, capital, which is like complicated in some respects, but then it's also like Brown Brothers, Harriman, Alan Dulles and Fritz Thyssen. You know what I mean? It's like people who were like actively attempting to prop up Adolf Hitler. And it's, you know, it's just like, I don't know. It's, the third eye is just like, oh, my God. Because <laughs> you always hear about people saying, you know, businessmen playing both sides. Mm-hmm. But then it's like when you actually read the names of people who were building the companies that produced the gas to kill the people in the concentration camps and that they were Americans, it's like, if that doesn't, if that, yeah, I don't know. If that doesn't just absolutely fry your mind and make you realize, oh, wow, you know. <laughs> so big change absolutely needs to happen and nothing will mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. because you know you only have to look at the war on terror or something like that to realize that things like this are absolutely still going on so we'll imagine we get to there <laughs> um anything to say on that or should we move on to the uh to the to the politics of the post fdr <laughs> world i d- developed the idea of a uh, segue Oh, okay. Uh, and my, my segue was to propose to talk about one particular do-gooder oh. who was exploited by a certain subset of nefarious actors. Oh, I'm interested in this. <laughs> but also, I wanted to wanted to re-highlight and also do a bit of a disclaimer. Um, <laughs> Jack has been very keen to both focus on. The activities of certain individuals, but also put the activities of those individuals in a particular class context, which sure. um, he is commended to have undertaken. Yeah. An activity I commend him for undertaking. Oh, I commend um, you for commending me. I, I, I can't but just get really bogged down <laughs> in just some of the personal stories, some of the individual acts. The of, neuroses. Some of, yeah, yeah, some of the sort of like... <laughs> neurotic or psychotic actions or perverted in oh, some yes. cases let's, let's be real <laughs> there's a great deal of perversion going we'll on we'll get to well. Raccoon <laughs> <laughs> there was a point when I was really like um, this um, This might well go over the heads of anybody that's not familiar with like the 
Lacanian school of psychoanalysis. <laughs> but okay. it's a little bit early on in this book when they're talking about um, the the sort of like the family background of the Dulces, mm. and they're like they're talking about. Um, an overbearing mother and a no, sort of I a- absent father. And I was like, my all my sort of like psychosis, <laughs> right, alarm, alarm bells were going. <laughs> Everything I know about like amateur attempts to uh, <laughs> to use a psychoanalytic framework to um, diagnose people. I was like, <laughs> so I, 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 I have, I, um, I'm, uh, I'm curious of the particular psychological um structures that might be at play in the heads of some of the dullest dullest uh, offspring can we just pause on the jungian stuff for a second yeah i didn't read any of that but if please don't like uh, was it alan dullis's wife that was was, was analyzed by analyzed by young, young? Yeah, yeah. yeah and apparently i went after this because it mentions young who's the other person that he psychoanalyzed it was someone else it was some other like he was like i'm interested in men of power which is kind of gross well, while, while you're looking for that, there's an essay, I believe, that Jung wrote, I think it was Jung, about analyzing the uh, personalities of Mussolini and Hitler, because apparently he was, like, at a dinner and, like, met both of them, which, like, I don't I don't really know what dinner that was for his meeting these two people. It's, it says here that um, Dulles, his wife, Clover, uh-huh. but also his wartime mistress, oh, Mary yeah. Bancroft, oh my were both, God. They were, <laughs> he's both his wife and his mistress, mistress. He had analyzed by Jung. Something creepy about Jung doing that. I don't know. It's very odd. Anyway, he was he, he was uh, he wrote some essay about analyzing, trying to use archetypes to analyze uh, Hitler and Mussolini. And he was like, "Listen, when I met Mussolini, you couldn't help but like the guy," which I think is really really funny. He calls him like a tribal strongman, just the archetype of like, "Let's go kick some goddamn ass." Sure. Whereas Hitler, he was like, "Tell you what, got a bad vibe from this kid." Which again, fair enough. But he talks about how Hitler was more of the like shamanistic uh archetype which is i think really really interesting of this person who takes all of the paranoia and neuroses of an entire society and then takes them all upon himself and just creates something completely different which is just this psychopathic rage um would still like to know what that dinner was that you like met mussolini and hitler at sounds very odd anyway that's i just want to talk about young <laughs> so <laughs> alan dillis mm. Stationed in Switzerland as an OSS sort of like station chief, I suppose, mm. that sort of relishes the activity, mm. is well into it. Mm. Comes home in 1945 and goes back to working at his, his law firm. <laughs> and all of his former collaborators, um, all of his wartime friends and allies, seem to think that their their spying days are behind them. Mm. But when you when you say wartime friends, <laughs> we're, obviously you're talking about some Americans, but. You're not talking about Nazis, are you? <laughs> some Americans, some some Nazis, mm-hmm. some legit Nazis, some people who were <laughs> instrumental in aiding certain Nazis in escaping prosecution. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl Wolf, Reinhard Galen, uh-huh, uh, who's uh-huh. the other guy? But uh, bon, bon Man or something like I don't know, not Bond Man. Know. Yeah, we skipped over certain sort of like wartime activities. activities. Okay, let's let's let's, <laughs> let's let's go over it quickly. Uh, it's I'm going to sort of ad hoc what I remember, and you'll have to you'll have to chip in and fill in kind of thing. As I recall, Alan Delos Station in Switzerland had cultivated certain relationships with certain influential Nazis. Mm. One of them, Karl Wolf, who was advisor to Goebbels or something. One of the high, one idea. one one of the sort of like 
number two, number three Nazis kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Wolf was uh, sort of chief advisor too, um, but ended up stationed in Italy toward the end of the war. And basically, Dulles was Alan Dulles was incredibly keen to protect these people. Mm. Wolf and some of his underlings in Italy, and he pulled basically every lever and every string he possibly could to prevent them to keep them out of the dock at Nuremberg. Yeah. Um, Wolf in particular really should have been one of the first and uh, first collection of Nazis tried at Nuremberg, basically. Sure. And basically, the only appearance he made ever made at Nuremberg at any of the trials was to be a witness for the defense of some of the Nazis. <laughs> fucking christ um and although it was the official policy of the fdr and truman administrations to i guess give low legal quarter to the nazis and the rulers of nazi germany basically they were all going to be tried for the crimes for which they were committed um which was kind of the first time in history whether they'd endeavor to do this to um the leaders of defeated countries ordinarily mm. like there would be some leniency given kind of thing certain overlooking of war crimes often went on <laughs> sure but alan dulles disagreed with this policy vociferously partly this was motivated i think by his very early fears that america was liable to enter very quickly into a conflict with the soviet union with a degree of warm hotness or coldness sure. undetermined yet but he thought that the soviet union posed this sort of grotesque threat to america and american interest can i just say on the note of the Please. trials who it was that actually said we should have trials because Ch churchill specifically was like get all of the main nazis and shoot them hang everyone you can these people all need to die uh -huh. fdr was like yeah sure why not and it was actually stalin who was like we should probably, probably have, have a, a trial, trial. <laughs> <laughs> i've forgotten about that <laughs> Yeah, although Stalin was a fan of a good trial. Yeah, I know. A show well, yeah. trial. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless. <laughs> although, yeah. Maybe I'll try and remember that quote from Churchill. Every time people are, people are quoting Churchill in the future, it's like, yeah. yeah, hang and shoot all the Nazis. <laughs> yeah. As Churchill once said. Yeah, as Churchill once said, I'm sick of living in this goddamn bunker. Kill all the Nazis. <laughs> uh, I think Al Alan Dulles' sentiment was that some of these people, however dastardly and evil their deeds may well have been, were going to be necessary for the rebuilding of Germany. Who were they going mm. to put in charge? Yeah, certainly not Soviets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, or certainly not sort of like social, soft social democrats who yeah. might be swayed to sort of the Soviet cause kind of thing. No, we were going to have to have all these strongmen kind of mm. thing who had fallen into the Nazi party, but really they were the legitimate rulers yeah. of this country. Yeah. As thought Alan Dulles. Mm. So yes, suffice it to say, Alan Dulles, instrumental in the protection of certain Nazi war criminals, mm. as he was obviously in the the protection of certain Nazi wealth, mm -hmm. both the wealth that was accrued by American companies through their dealings with Nazi Germany, but also... Um, various pools of money that were accumulated mm. by various Nazis or people who collaborated by the Nazis, appropriated, <laughs> stolen um, by certain um, collaborators with the Nazis who all sort of seemed to end up in the, in the deposited in certain American bank accounts. Mm -hmm. All of their legal representation was done by certain American law firms. <laughs> I wonder which mm -hmm. ones. Mm. <laughs> anyway... 
anyway. Um, yeah, and as we were alluding to also earlier, um, Alan Dulles quite instrumental, I think on several occasions during the war, of preventing certain communiques about the severe extent of, or the, the true extent of the Holocaust mm-hmm. um, for certain sort of tactical and strategic decisions of his own. I forget, Dan, did I mention, I forget, when I was listing off those American companies, did any of the, were any of them using forced labor concentration camps? I forget. Uh, you I only ref- you referred to it very briefly, but yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. The the answer two, is yes. two, yeah. <laughs> so, something to highlight again. Ford, um, baby. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we, yeah. yeah. And it's one thing that he was doing that, but it's also like the ways in which information was leaking out of Nazi Germany about the Holocaust was yeah. like, specifically, there was one guy who like was in, I forget which concentration camp, but he was in a pretty brutal concentration camp, as concentration camps tend to be. And yeah. he managed to escape. He managed to, I think there was something like he had to hide in a wood pile for two days mm-hmm. while Nazi guards were just like walking by, shooting the shit escape, walk like a couple hundred miles across enemy lines, across enemy lines to like put his report and to like find... Literally into the hands. Literally into the hands of Alan Dulles and be like, my family's dead. Everyone I know is dead. They're killing millions of people. America needs to join this war right now tell FDR. And he just threw the report in the trash. And this happened several times. Mm -hmm. It's hard to describe. You know, it is like I we wanted to have like a systemic approach and a pr- an analysis of the systems that created these people, but it's so hard not to be like this guy was just evil. He was just purely evil. You know what I mean? It's like, well, my bot, my buddy's down in Wall Street. We're making some money off of Dachau. It's like, I it, like I can't. I, yeah, unbelievable. All yeah, I yeah. I yeah, I struggle not to think of him to some extent as somebody who I feel like had quite a sort of delusional attitude well it was truthful in sense it wasn't really mm. a delusion kind of thing but yeah like, that's a thing um a sense of his influence and his importance even when he wasn't the person who was who should be making the final decision he always thought he was the person that should be making the decision and did his utmost to have like uh, outcomes that he favored win out and i find it very easy to look past simple mm. sort of like economic interest i suppose or one of the things that allowed him to do this was a certain dare i say perverse sense Mm. of self-importance um and sort of self-aggrandizement but anyway i'm just sort of like speculating on i was thinking psychology now i was which i'm which i'm i'm obviously loath to do (laughs) (laughs) what are the three categories again (laughs) (laughs) neurosis perversion psychosis i maybe i'm I'm more like there are some there are some characteristics of perversion mm. which are kind of like um a very personal understanding of the law and what's right and wrong um, oh, sure which sort of like i would mm. be i would be willing to attach to Alan Dulles. Mm. <laughs> might be the trifecta quite frankly <laughs> might be the full, full whammy he's he's the full sort of gordian knot of the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a grand slam, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, where were we when we before we when we were like we, we need to say what Alan Dulles did during the war? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to um, uh, endeavor to outline his post-war efforts to get back into the spying game. Yes, it's funny you we were talking about him being being an old man and whatever. Like mm. even at this point, he was referred to by a sort of collection of spying. <laughs> 
former collaborators as the old man kind of thing. Yeah. And they would sort of gather together at his law firm and sort of like have drinks and talk about the good old days. Um, <laughs> but Alan Dull is certainly not willing to be out of this game yet. Oh, absolutely. Um, particularly because of his fixation with what he thought was the coming conflict with the Soviets and that America needed a much more robust and offensive as opposed to defensive, mm. although it was obviously offensive in a lot of other ways. No, sure. <laughs> needed to go on the offense against the Soviets sort of swiftly and preemptively. Mm. He became a very strong advocate for the requirement for American to develop a independent and robust sort of like a strong man's approach. Well, yeah, that. but like a spying apparatus. Sure. A sort of like um, intelligence industry, a um, basically what would become the CIA. Yes. But it- a very particular type of agency, which was, as I say, robust, went on the offensive easily, independent in a oh, lot of ways, sure. like given a very free reign and a free hand. Mm. And although he wasn't responsible for the creation of the CIA, which create, which was created in 1947 as part of the National Security Act, he did manage to get himself, or he was promoted to be on a um, committee which reported a year later in 1948 about what usage this new intelligence agency ought to be put to, yeah. I suppose. Um, and this report put forward very much a sort of like dullest vision of what American sort of like counter-communist or counter-intelligence or intelligence activities ought to be, which was very much like a taking off the gloves approach kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Using some of our allies in Europe. Yeah, 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 yeah. To do the right. same thing. Yeah, good chaps, I'm sure. So yeah, FDR and Truman had a huge amount of disdain for the Dulleses. Sure. FDR in particular, and then Truman after took over the presidency and maintain this degree of sort of antipathy to their ideas truman come the 60s particularly maybe in december of 1963 (laughs) would have some things to say about alan dulles specifically (laughs) and so obviously truman was not inclined to put the cia to these uses yeah truman really wanted the cia purely to report information to the president to the joint Chiefs, so that they could make independent they could make the decisions Mm. on what actions ought to be taken and i can't remember the particular phraseology he used but he really warned against the threat that a clandestine and unaccountable cia Mm. might pose or the kind of activities that it might yeah um might put itself to Mm. it's easy to follow that logic too right because it's like if you have an agency whose goal is to do like clandestine intelligence gathering it's really easy if you're in charge of that agency to just go sorry we actually can't talk about that right now we can't tell you about this this is something that we can't tell anybody about can't tell congress it'll endanger the operation and that just gives you a free reign Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's exactly what wound up happening yeah yeah yeah, definitely but dulles given this sort of snub by Mm. truman basically just went and set up his own sort of shadow intelligence agency Mm. um Operating, operating ostensibly inside of the sort of State Department apparatus, but basically escaped accountability in exactly the ways he wanted the the CIA to operate kind of thing. Mm. Try and find what's the name of the organization that they set up. 
Is this the one that they set up yeah, just, it's just in gross. the cupboard? <laughs> they like set up in some like well, closet. Yeah, I mean they start meeting at like in a soundproof like <laughs> room or something like that. Basically they just start operating like they are running an intelligence agency. And this is yeah. like Dulles and lots of collaborators of his from his sort of wartime OSS days. And they begin to sort of like recruit um people in Western Europe. A lot of ex-Nazis, they begin to recruit to be sort of agents of theirs. And I think, like, by the end of the 40s, they're operating this sort of, like, pseudo-independent um, spy ring, which basically has about 3,000 employees and another, yeah. like, thousand and a half sort of, like, contracted people. Um, and they're engaged in all sorts of stuff. They're engaged in... Well, and one of the more almost more benign things that they do is... Um, collect a huge amount of money and funnel it to the Italian Christian Democrats in an effort to ensure that the Italian Communist Party lose yep. the sort of elections in 46, which is exactly what happens. Mm -hmm. um, but, there, I mean, the, the book alludes to them being involved in far more um, serious activities, almost sure. going to assassinations, although it doesn't specify yeah. who they assassinated. Terrorist of, but, acts, especially yeah. in Italy. I mean, one of the things that they would do was... This is, in the, this is before the CIA in the 40s, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, kind of all throughout Italy's history, though, specifically, is, like, they would fund operations with, like, fascist groups, or, like, at least, very least, far-right groups, where they would fake communist attacks on the public which like okay that doesn't make any sense and they go god damn communists they built a train station at one point they would just go around assassinating people and being like this is what communists do man you believe that mm -hmm. and that kind of shit i mean that worked right i mean uh what's the, what's the guy's name the pervert who's in charge of italy for forever um what's the guy's name the bold fat guy uh, i think he went to prison for a little while um Berlusconi. Berlusconi. There you go. The bald fat like, pervert. Yeah. I mean, your description is apt. I was just like, I don't think, I mean, it sounds like he's talking about Berlusconi, but he wasn't. He didn't rule Italy in the 30s. Or the, in the 40s, sorry. Right? Sure, but he directly came out of these groups that were founded by, this was its genesis, right? Mm -hmm. He directly came out of these groups that yeah. were like funded by foreign money. Um, so, yes. The, uh, the, the, the wonderfully benign name of the of the organization that they were operating was the office for policy coordination <laughs> inside the state department and one of the more outlandish and also dastardly and also incredibly effective operations they ran was one called operation splinter faction <laughs> um and this is where enters our um our naive and well-meaning um person who was used Oh, thoroughly yeah. by the Dulleses, a story which was going to repeat itself through history, I think. So and sad. also enter another um, collection of nice Quakers. Yeah! <laughs> Always getting the short <laughs> end of the stick. <laughs> We're going to receive another short end of the stick. Um, <laughs> particularly a, a, a story that revolves around a guy called Noel Field, who Dulles quite spectacularly sold down the river, mm. really quite intentionally, despite having quite a long history with him. Um, somebody who he'd met, met during the First World War when Field was still a young boy and, and Alan Dulles had been quite taken by him. <laughs> Dulles had asked what, what um, Field would like to uh, do when he grew up and Field had responded, I want to work toward world peace. <laughs> um, and he a had become somebody who, he became somebody who was a very uh, committed and avowed pacifist um, after having seen sort of like both the sort of like caravans of wounded soldiers that were coming through 
uh, Switzerland at the time, and then also his dad took him on a, a, a tour of the battlefields of Europe immediately after <laughs> World War One, which was As yeah, you do. yeah, definitely going to cement um, <laughs> uh, cement one sort of like pacifistic leanings. Yeah, he he yeah ended up working for the State Department in America, but also um, this is in the thirties, and this partly where this story sort of intersects with the idea of the degree to which. Um, Socialist leanings in the 20s and 30s sort of had a degree of normalcy kind of thing. Like mm. he, he was somebody who clearly had socialist leanings, never joined the Communist Party, but sort of like interactive with the, um, that sort of like milieu, I suppose. Um, he taught himself Russian uh, so that he could read Lenin and, and Stalin in the original. <laughs> and um, eventually his sort of like communist leanings become apparent to a sort of like a Soviet spy here and he sort of ends up sort of like uh, passing information to the Soviets and spends a little bit of time as a Soviet spy but eventually decides he needs to eschew that life because he desperately wants to remain neutral he mm. wants to remain an American but also somebody who has sort of like leanings toward the Soviet Union because he's just a nice quite he's a do-gooder yeah he's just a do-gooder um, <laughs> this is a pro-do-gooder but, podcast yeah. <laughs> alright say what you will pro-do-gooder podcast but then, um, but then during the Second World War, he's working uh, in sort of like as a some kind of relief agency in Switzerland, and um, starts to while uh, starts to feed information. Another person who's feeding information to Alan Dulles. Sure. <laughs> in actual fact, he they he and his wife adopt a um, a German refugee, I think, a young girl, and she ends up cycling weapons over the border <laughs> into France to deliver them to to French resistance fighters there. So, so people who people who um, have a strong working relationship with Alan Dulles. Mm. So, when it is suggested to Alan Dulles in the in the late forties that when it's discovered that Field is intending to go for a job interview in Switzerland, that what they might do is through a double agent that they have in Poland feed to the Soviets and therefore to Stalin the idea that Frankfield is in fact the head of a spy ring. Um, <laughs> the intention being it works out probably better than they intended. The idea is that they're going to seed in the uh, in the brain of Stalin the idea that there is this massive spy ring operating against the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe and what they will instill is even greater paranoia in Stalin than already exists in his head and it will lead to this a tremendous purge across Eastern Europe, seeking out all of the agents of this non-existent spy ring, um, and it works. It works Perfect. entirely as they intended. Yeah. And not only does Norfield get captured in um, in the Czech Republic and spend five years in prison, his his wife and his brother both go looking for him through contacts that they have in Poland and they're both arrested and spend five years and then the aforementioned adopted daughter goes and <laughs> cycles into East Germany in an effort to reconnect with people that she knows in an office over there and she's arrested and spent five years in a in a in a Soviet gulag um until the death of Stalin and it's basically revealed that this spying and this plot never existed at all and it was all the influence and machinations of Alan Dulles and his collaborators. So uh, for me, a telling story when it comes to Alan Dulles's willingness to um, use people without any regard for what it mean, might mean for anybody's life, regardless of the prior relationships that he has with them, mm. but also um, the 
in this case, the degree to which it's quite a successful plot in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, it, bas- it basically very nearly leads to the collapse of uh, the Czech economy. <laughs> um, there are hundreds of thousands of people arrested across Eastern Europe. 170,000 Czech Communist Party members are interrogated. Anybody Jesus who basically Christ. ever had any connection to um, Frank Field's wartime activities, which were quite extensive because he was working as a re- some kind of relief yeah. agent kind of thing. Um, so, yeah. Pro-Quaker podcast. <laughs> Always trust Quakers. Always trust the do-gooders, especially if you're... Um, Joseph Stalin. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing, too. I mean, obviously, this was played off in America as, like, Stalin at it again, baby. Which, you know, not going to go into that, but, like, disaster all around. Complete disaster. <laughs> and the personal level of this poor Quaker and his lovely, presumably beautiful family, and a disaster for the Soviet Union <laughs> and for the people who lived under it. Absolutely. Um, and, again, just shows... Just shows it's just evil. It's just absolutely evil. And it's just this paranoia of like the Cold War beginning and people being like, intelligence, I guess that's got to be the new thing. Like the Americans are recruiting Nazis. So we got to we gotta figure out what we're going to do. We got to come back and it's just all spirals out of control. And Alan Dulles, say what you will, smart cookie, that guy. <laughs> if you're willing to completely eschew morals, you know, <laughs> we'll get into some of the other stuff he does. It's even yeah, worse, yeah, yeah. but like, my God. How, that was, I mean, maybe we should say we don't know about all of these plots that failed, mm-hmm. but that one, successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. A, a triumph of ruthless amorality. Absolutely. I would say. And so, yeah, as you say, the CAA goes from being this thing that was founded originally to just give the president information to this absolutely clandestine, out of control, doing whatever it wants agency ostensibly part of the state that is able to access state funds but is also getting off the books funds from a number of illegal activities including selling drugs and probably just stealing money as well but also presumably from the private sector in america as well i mean well you know define private sector but like capitalists nonetheless i mean these people were all operating it's not like after world war ii dulles was like I don't want any of my Sullivan and Cromwell friends to call me ever again. He's doing all of these things for the specific goal of making people at home a lot of money and stopping communism, which Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. tied pretty closely together. Do you want to talk about one of America's most beautiful, one of California's (laughs) most beautiful children? Should we talk about California's most beautiful children soon? (laughs) But should we talk about one of America's most drunkest men first as a way of introducing one of California's most beautiful boys? (laughs) Okay, okay. okay. (laughs) The drunkest man in history ladies and gentlemen you probably know him from american history books as that time that we got a little bit too much like the crucible or i guess other way around maybe but um our lovable scotch drinking boy joseph mccarthy he enters this story as um someone who i'll be honest i have a bit of a hard time reading Because, ostensibly, it's easy to read the McCarthy story as somebody who's set up by people people like the Dulleses, by private interests, and, of course, the state as well, to squash anything that even reeks of communism in the United States. Squash unions, squash, uh, you know, radical progressives, anything like that. Uh, uh, Film directors who, you know, like, went to a party once where somebody was wearing red and red, that's a communist color, arrest everybody there. Um... It's easy to read his story as that. 
But as this book makes clear, as McCarthy's reign of like anti-communists call everybody before the House Un-American Activities Committee and if not arrest them, humiliate them um, for being even remotely left, uh, that spiraled out of control pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And as this book makes clear, the people who set him on anything with a modicum of left-wing activity began to regret it. Is that fair to say? I would say so, yeah. <laughs> Especially one uh, John Foster Dulles, author of the War Guilt Class. And maybe we should say this whole time, John Foster Dulles has been um, uh, a State Department guy, and he's been kind of like a mover and shaker in the more political ends of things, whereas Alan Dulles has been the spy brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It almost feels like Alan Dulles has been groomed for this role basically his entire life. Mm. There is a degree to which the Dulles family almost lays claim to the role of Secretary of State and a connection to yeah. uh, the connection to that department, I suppose. And it's almost like a family heirloom. Yeah, wasn't his... I'm just looking it up now. Wasn't his... Ah, the grandfather and his uncle both served as Secretary of State. So, yeah, okay. yeah absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there is this sense of, between the two Dulles brothers that, like, John Foster is entitled to be Secretary of State and Alan Dulles is entitled to be head CIA chief, basically. Um, and they're the roles that they expect to have and they're, so much of their maneuverings and machinations are all designed to get themselves to the point where they can take on those two roles kind of mm. thing um, and therefore uh, instill their vision of what American foreign policy ought to be, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and domestic policy as well, as we see with um, our drunk boy. Sure. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's not, um, it's really worth fixating on and pointing out quite how useful the idea of anti-communism becomes in this period. Mm. And it's not just, um, it's not well, it's not just sort of like Senator McCarthy's reign of terror that, mm. <laughs> that sort of extends between like 1950 and 1954 kind of thing, but um, the the House and American Activities Committee predates him and um, has a significant yeah. um, committee member in the form of Richard Nixon, um, <laughs> and like even a very, Richard Nixon's first political campaign against Jerry Voorhees. It's like it's. It becomes very apparent to all involved, not just Nixon um, and not just to his victims, not just his victim Voorhees, but also to um, the Dulleses and the cabal of people around the Dulleses, quite how useful it will be to purge all of these former New Dealers from government or not even if they're in, go not in government anymore, but to destroy their reputations, yeah. to sort of create this um, spectre mm. and spectacle mm. of... Um, secret communists yeah. hiding throughout the government, hiding throughout American institutions. Um, and at, at the root of all of these purges, particularly the ones that they take particular interest in, is usually some personal uh, desire to advance some sort of um, personal interest of one mm. kind or other kind of thing. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's it's important to kind of realize, as we were saying earlier, that when we talk about the New Deal consensus, this is like 10, not, this is five years after World War II ended. This is five years after FDR died and was like, yeah, you're right. We have to get rid of every Republican ever. That's not what he said, but you know what I mean. So like, this was a pretty concerted and pretty successful effort at getting rid of, well, we should say they replaced the term New Dealer with Communist. 
And if you were Voorhees, you were a communist. If you were, you know, anybody who smacked of not the Wall Street establishment, although we'll get to what happened later, uh, you were a communist, right? One, one of the things that really tickled me in this story of the Nixon Voorhees um, uh, contest was one of Nixon's strategies was for his operatives, I suppose, to cold call people and just say, oh, yeah. basically the line was, um, this is a friend of yours. I can't identify myself, <laughs> but don't you know Joe Voorhees is a communist? <laughs> I'd be like, damn, <laughs> nice, Jerry. Well, quite, yeah. That <laughs> would like, intrigue right. us to vote for him. We'll yeah. be on board. <laughs> but yeah. apparently spreading, 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 well, basically like relentlessly calling somebody a communist regardless of their actual political connections. Um, it turns out wins you elections in Win America. Wins elections. Get rid of those yeah. damn new dealers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, yeah, we should say what winds up happening with McCarthy is obviously it spirals way out of control. Mm -hmm. And do you have the stat that you shared with me right before we started recording, Dan, about how many people from the State Department wound <laughs> up getting uh, sacked? So it wasn't the State Department, but eventually... Senator McCarthy turns his gaze on the State Department. Mm. Uh, and this is at a time when, after fifty, after the election of 52, after the election of Eisenhower, uh, John Foster Dulles is now head of the State Department. And Foster Dulles basically acquiesces to letting this purge, this witch hunt, mm. run rampant through mm. the institution that he now... Uh, represents and w one of the the sub departments of um the state department which comes under, under particular scrutiny is voice of america <laughs> which was america's like european propaganda arm yeah what I, what I assume is equivalent to the british world service mm. um and <laughs> the stat is of its 1400 employees <laughs> After the McCarthyist purge, fully 870 of them, <laughs> including its director, have lost their jobs. That's and let's make it clear. 50 percent. These were not really new dealers. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not people who had any particular connection to, like, substantial... Um, <laughs> policies of FDR, they hadn't fulfilled like significant positions in any government departments kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, clear too that this happens because McCarthy runs out of people who he can reasonably claim might have something to do with communism, then might have something to do with the New Deal, then might be kind of just a Democrat, and then he's just like, I don't, I'm still going, I'm <laughs> drunk, I don't know, I'm drinking a bottle a day, baby. There, There is a point also when his his, I don't know what role he fulfills. His assistant, Cone, Roy Cone, Roy ladies Cone. and gentlemen, who you one, probably one heard quite a lot of no, in I the last know, seven I didn't years. Know about this. So this is the same Roy Cone yep. is currently or very recently because you told me he was Trump's lawyer, uh, but I was like, he, he couldn't he possibly died. be now. He must yeah. be. We must be talking like in the eighties. He something. died in the eighties. Yeah. I oh, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but he is of significance now. Just, just, just because, because, <laughs> because he was the one who set Trump. Okay, so we we <laughs> Sorry, do need yeah, to go, go off. Yeah, we do need me. to have kind of an important conversation yeah. here, which is that when there are times, Dan, when you talk about um, events that took place, that is really easy to come across as like a loony conspiracy theorist. But the reason that that happens sometimes is because of things like this. It's because it's the same people showing up over and over again in like. Oh, uh, Oliver North, the guy who was involved in 
effing Iran-Contra wound up running the NRA under Trump. It's like these people, there are just a group of people. Oh, I don't want to say it's a group of people. There's a small selection of people who keep coming up throughout history. And Roy Cohn is one of these people. And Nixon's one of these people. Mm. It's like the reason that these people, the Eastern establishment latched onto Nixon is because they went, now here's a dude who will just do anything to lick our boots. He's, there's, well, we'll get to Nixon in a second. I don't want to ruin that. But it's like McCarthy had both Roy Cohn, who went on to be Trump's lawyer on his team, as like his second in command, and Nixon. It's like, it's important to understand that when you talk about some of these things, it can sound crazy, but that's just the nature of the system operating as it should. Because it's just, it's a, it's, it's like a boys club. It's just these people keep showing up and it drives you insane throughout this entire book. You're like, wait a minute, that was the guy who was working with the Nazis in World War II and now he's he's in Guatemala and now for some reason he's in Dealey Plaza. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> like, I don't know. It's, just, it's, it, it's important to realize that like, I don't know, that this is not crazy. It's just the system operating as it should in that if you are willing, as Nixon was, as Roy Cohn was, as the Dulleses were, to just submit yourself to capital, you're going to keep coming up in some of the most dastardly events in American history. The most American, the most committed American simps for capital <laughs> uh, keep showing up. Exactly. There you go. And yeah, it, it, again, to calm down a little bit, Nixon served as the connection between the Dulleses and between the Eastern establishment to McCarthy. And he was kind of supposed to be the one that they could uh, deal with. Yeah, rain, yeah they, they, there was multiple occasions when they set Nixon with the task of reigning McCarthy in. He just completely yeah, fails no at chance. Like he's failed at literally everything <laughs> in his entire life. I hate to say it, but Nixon is such a duck. Like, just go back and watch videos of him trying to speak. It's like, oh my God, this guy. <laughs> Yeah, why was that? Why was he considered to be such a successful and competent politician? Well, I, th I mean, I think because he somehow managed to chart the course between pretending to be. Um, I mean, maybe it's because he doesn't come from this privileged background, right? Mm. He he's so desperate to get in in with this this crowd of sort of like um, Eastern establishment, New York uh, lawyers. Princeton alums mm. that he will basically just do anything for it exactly, but he does yeah. also seem to be able to both pass himself up as off as the everyman mm. but also be thoroughly in the pocket of all of these characters opportunist yeah, oh, yeah. the only yeah, yeah, word yeah, for yeah, Nixon yeah, 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 complete yeah. opportunist yeah. um I mean yeah I mean he he all but admits that all of his anti-communist rhetoric is opportunism because that's how he wins elections sure. kind of thing sure absolutely um, yeah, yeah, yeah there's a there's, there's a quote after he's defeated Voorhees um he is confronted by some a, a sort of like Voorhees representative who's basically confronting him about the things he said about Voorhees and the more Nixon says to this representative of course I knew Voorhees wasn't a communist <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I had to win the election yeah. and you do whatever you need to do to win elections and anything else is naive yeah. An interesting quote in 1946, yeah. reflecting on the rest of Nixon's career. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, let's talk about California's most beautiful boy. <laughs> um, something that I will never be able to cleanse myself of, Dan, yeah. I've told you this before, is yeah. that the way that Nixon's career has started is that a group of businessmen get together in California 
And they basically say, they basically say there's this guy in Orange County, which is really funny because that's not what Orange County would be now. They say there's this guy in Orange County who's causing a lot of problems for businessmen, and that's Jerry Voorhees, right? He's talking about nationalizing oil. Whoa, we're not going to, you know, deal with that. What we need is the most bribable, lick-splittle-esque, just disgusting toad of a human to just be paid by us uh, to then run against him and just will do anything to win and will do what we want once he's in office. That, of course, winds up being Nixon. But the thing that disgusts me, Dan... <laughs> Should we have a look under the nearest rock to see who we find <laughs> yeah. lurking there? Well, I hate to say it because it's going to be me. Oh, right. oh I see. <laughs> because I've, be- forgotten, I've forgotten this part of the story. <laughs> because, because the place that these businessmen met to organize this... Uh, uh, career of Nixon's to liter- to almost literally pass around a hat to just get a bunch of money was the hotel that I used to work at when I was in high school <laughs> when I needed a summer job and they probably had these conversations at the pool that I used to work which <laughs> makes me want to vomit it's like wait a minute I worked for this place <laughs> I read that in the book and I like the closest it. <laughs> place you've been geographically to American history <laughs> exactly yeah I was like no <laughs> Probably served one of these people's grandkids. Mm. Um, okay, but uh, I was suggesting we a different rock. Oh, okay. To find lurking underneath a, a different, uh, significantly more sinister character. In oh, the story, thank you. <laughs> one Alan Dulles. Ah, oh, what do you know? <laughs> Who do you think it was that put all of these rich businessmen up to mm. promoting? Richard Nixon in this campaign. It wasn't me. I, was, I wasn't born yet. I wasn't at the pool. <laughs> Initially in this book, the suggestion is, well, this, the narrative is begun with the suggestion that Alan Dulles and Richard Nixon meet on a fact-finding mission to Europe in like 1946 or something mm-hmm. to, in an effort to convince Nixon um, that uh, Truman's plans for post-World War II European development what would become the Marshall Plan mm. um, were something that he ought vote for. But a little later in the narrative, it becomes apparent that in actual fact, Alan Dulles and Richard Nixon have had a previous encounter mm-hmm. when Richard Nixon was still a naval officer. He, in 19, at the end of the war, basically, he was in, came into receipt of a certain collection of documents and cables, amongst which he found some highly incriminating evidence of Alan Dulles and his connection to um, certain of his aforementioned Nazi connections, Nazi activities, some of the uh, funneling of Nazi wealth that he was doing into America. Mm. Um, and it was at this point that Richard Dixon, Richard Nixon and um, Alan Dulles struck up a deal mm. that Alan Dulles would support Richard Nixon's um, campaign to be the congressman from... Orange County, <laughs> um, if it were to be the case that Richard Nixon would disappear, shall we say, certain of this incriminating evidence. What, what do we think those doc? What do you think those documents were? You think it was just like, dear Nazi, <laughs> here's fifty Thank bucks. You for- <laughs> Alan Dulles. He's like, I thought I burned that one. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's fair to say that Alan Dulles also had reason to want to get rid of Jerry Voorhees for very similar reasons sure. that. Jerry Voorhees wanted to launch a probe into these people and their history with the Nazis. (laughs) Yeah. And I think let's take one further step back in history to talk about psychoanalyzing. Get your (laughs) psychoanalysis book out because we're going to psychoanalyze Nixon. Nixon is from 
I think he's from Whittier. He went to Whittier College. Whittier College, great school. Um, all of these people that we're talking about in the, like, Eastern establishment either went to Yale or, like, another Yale. Harvard, I don't know, whatever the other ones are. But mainly Yale. And if you really wanted to be one of the big boys, you had to be, like, a Yaley, basically. Mm -hmm. And all the people at Sullivan and Cromwell who were making these moves, you know, the DuPonts, the Bushes, all of these people, uh, they were all part of this club, this very specific club. This was like before, you know, as we talked about with Mike Davis, before there were like kind of these centers of capitalists that could compete with the Eastern establishment. This is where these people were. Nixon wanted to be part of these people, uh, part of this gang, but he went to Whittier. Come on, you're not going to be part of the gang if you went to Whittier, Nixon. Of course not. And so there's an amazing point in this book where he relates a young, probably beautiful Richard Nixon um, sitting in the lobby of Sullivan and Cromwell, hoping for an interview with the law firm. And like, he, he really like feels, Talbot really feels himself with this. He's like, you know, his feet dug into the thick, luxurious carpet and he saw the fine oak paneling on the walls. And basically they didn't even offer. They were like, could you please leave? Yeah. Interview <laughs> he you. managed get to get the here. interview. He didn't meet with Phyllis or anybody <laughs> yeah. like that. Like, and, yeah, get out of like, there. No way, no way, <laughs> yeah, no way. But boy. not before he was significantly or sufficiently enamored with the entire environment. Yeah. Um, and always seemed to believe that um, that was the place where he belonged. And that was what was most ironic about this meeting that happened in this Ohio hotel, was that <laughs> it was it seemed to have been prompted by the fact that Richard Nixon um, was low... He was willing to run for office, but he was loath to accept such a small... Uh, yeah. salary yeah. based on the premise that he would be able to get a much more lead a much more lucrative career at a New York law firm. In the private sector, yeah, which yeah. is true. So that's why all these dudes at no, the No, I mean, like his, his previous, previous efforts to secure himself a, a position yeah. at a New York law firm, Failed. not gone particularly well. Yeah. <laughs> so it may have been a little bit of a fib on his part that yeah. he thought that he deserved all this extra cash. Yeah, it worked, though, because they literally passed around a hat and were like, yeah, give gave us him so much a money, lot of a money. <laughs> we need to pay a lot of people to call everyone in Whittier <laughs> and tell them the jury for he's a communist. Um, so thus begins the rise of Tricky Dick mm -hmm. and Tricky Dick then obviously, as you say, gets on the boat and finds these documents somehow and then, and gets in with Alan Dulles, which must've felt good. Yeah. I yeah, hope yeah. he didn't destroy them. I hope he kind of kept them, yeah. but probably didn't do anything with them after that. Um, and then yes, he gets on the, uh, uh, uh McCarthy bandwagon and, uh, I suppose it all kind of falls apart. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, for Richard Nixon. <laughs> for Richard, yeah. Well, yeah, for McCarthy, certainly. Sure. Did yeah, he, yeah. How did that? Did McCarthy just die? <laughs> or was he just way too drunk? Everyone was like, all right, chill out, dude. I don't know. Yeah, I forget. Oh, I well, don't know. Whatever happened. I think, happened. I, think I, I mean, I think it was just that he pissed off. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm just guessing now. <laughs> I think he pissed off all the wrong people. I mean, you maybe sure? you can Google it and find out. <laughs> um, I mean, but, well, basically, basically, after, 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 well, after McCarthy's. Um, gaze and I have fell upon the State Department and he thoroughly ravaged that institution mm. to the point where John Foster Dulles was terrified that he was going to lose his job just through the association and scandal of all of these like in mm. air quotes communists that he was potentially harboring um, Nixon no McCarthy turned his gaze upon the CIA and Alan Dulles took a totally different strategy yeah. which was one of total refusal to cooperate yeah there was um, there was somebody that um, McCarthy wanted to subpoena at the CIA, and basically Alan Dulles hid this guy from McCarthy or from the people that were trying to deliver these subpoenas. Sure. Um, 
and they sort of continually tried to subpoena other people and tried to subpoena Alan Dulles at one point. Um, and Alan Dulles just basically refused to go and go and yeah. um, give his testimony to the committee kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think it was at this point that like everybody started to dig around in their big mounds of dirt. Yeah. To try and see what they could fling at different people, kind of thing, yeah. and um, I think there was quite a lot of dirt that stuck with <laughs> stuck to McCarthy amongst yeah. other people. It looks like uh, it, eventually uh, the Senate uh, censured him, um, and they made him stop. And then several years later, he died of hepatitis. <laughs> so, it's the sad <laughs> ending for one McCarthy, America's drunkest man. America's drunkest man. Let that be a lesson, folks. Um, however, Richard Nixon's legacy. Would yeah. go on, <laughs> although not without some hiccups. <laughs> Certainly not without some hiccups. Um, I don't know. Should we? Is there anything else? I, we want to talk I about would him? like to talk about one other piece of Richard Nixon's history. Sure. Uh, with a heavy dose of Alan Dulles. Okay. Sprinkled on top. All right. Or sprinkled beneath, Hit I suppose. <laughs> um, Richard Nixon managed to get himself, thanks to Alan Dulles, his endorsement and the endorsement of. Um, uh, his his New York cabal mm-hmm. managed to get himself on the presidential ticket of one Dwight D. Eisenhower mm. um, <laughs> as his vice presidential running mate. Mm. And somebody whose gaze fall, falls upon Richard Nixon is a, a journalist named, named Drew Peterson who uncovers um, several pieces of quite incriminating evidence. One um, relates to a slush fund that was set up for Richard Nixon. Um, surprise, surprise. Surprise, <laughs> which um, Richard Nixon manages to, um, I think perhaps quite masterfully wriggle out of through giving of a, a, a televised public address where he's seen to defend himself quite well and give this mm. sort of powerful speech and endear himself to the American public. Um, and then almost days before election day in 1952, Pearson starts to perpetuate this new story of the connection between Richard Nixon and a um, Romanian oligarch. <laughs> oh, this guy. Forgot about this guy. <laughs> By the name of um, Nikolai Malaxa. The suggestion is that Malaxa has paid Nixon a £100,000 bribe in the hopes of gaining Richard Nixon's help in fast-tracking his um, uh, settled status in the U.S. Basically, Mm. he wants to move to the U.S. Mm. um, and gain settled status there. And the person who put Malexa in contact with Richard Nixon was one uh, Alan Dulles. Wait a minute, (laughs) this guy. Alan Dulles, who was Malexa's lawyer and I think represented... Uh, Malex's vast fortune, which he'd sort of like gradually sequestered into lots of bank accounts in the US and also mm. sort of spread it all over the place, kind of thing. Like yeah. that, everybody, everybody's, yeah, money crap. <laughs> Basically, my note, the note that I wrote down was uh, Malexa money everywhere. So like, I was just like, <laughs> there was just this sort of taint of it all over the place. Just put it Alan Dulles, incredibly implicated. Um, from what we've already talked about already, I don't think it's incredible, too incredible to believe that um, Alan Dulles wanted to create to protect uh, this person's ill-gotten gains, shall we say? Sure, yeah, we can say that, yeah. Um, so a little bit about Nikolai Malexa. Um, a humble background, I think made his fortune in 
transportation, I think, in Romania, maybe trains or something mm. like that. Mm. Uh, there's one, there's one very peculiar uh, or telling, I suppose, anecdote in the book where Melexa um, has he manages to get his way in, make his way into the circles of power in Romania because he befriends the king's mistress, mm. and then manages to set his own daughter up as the mistress of the the king's son so sort of like the prince in romania which is which in the book is described as the game of thrones uh, maneuver but it, it does the job of getting him into the circles of power as it were i suppose but as um the sort of rising tide of nazism in europe and um, anti-Semitism and the influence of Nazi Germany begins to spread in the 30s. There is this growing nationalist and anti-Semitic movement in Romania who are called um, a not at all fascist name, <laughs> the Iron Guard. <laughs> it's very, it's, it's, it could be a space marine. Oh, agent, just to be that's, that's my favorite space marine chapter. Um, <laughs> who who the Iron Guard eventually see to the toppling of the king and the installation of a um, pro-Nazi uh, regime in Romania. Mm. Um, before this 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 happens, Malexa has already um, successfully managed to cut his ties with with the king of Romania and literally begins to fly the flag of the Iron Guard from his castle <laughs> and manages to install himself as what would seem to be like the leader of this group or a pseudo leader of this group or somebody who's seen to be um, a significant connection to it. So much so that when this coup is finally put down, um, he goes to prison. Um, worth mentioning that the Iron Guard, which he is seen to, well, clearly allied himself with and was keen to be allied with, um, are responsible for some really brutal pogroms. Sure. Um, which I won't sort of like tell you the details of, but like... You know what a pogrom yeah, is, horrific, folks. Horrific, horrific, It's horrific. not good. Um, he, <laughs> he is removed from power, but then somehow manages to curry the favour of the new communist regime that comes into place after the Soviet, Soviet Union retake Romania. He's making deals. He's just making deals. Um, and so he has this connection to both Nazism, brutal anti-Semitic acts in Romania, and then also a connection to the new Romanian communist regime. But I think he knows where the wind is blowing and knows that he really needs to get yeah. out of Romania. <laughs> what were you doing uh, for the last five years? Um, and as we've already ascertained, Alan Dulles is someone who um, is amoral to his core and really only interested in protecting people's money um, and is quite, clean, quite keen to uh, promote and protect this person once they reach America mm -hmm. and puts them in contact with Richard Nixon in an effort to uh, fast track his immigration. Um, an immigration process which is incredibly difficult for Malexa because his list of crimes, shall we say, is basically repugnant to absolutely everybody. Yeah, there sure. is really nobody in the American establishment at all, <laughs> minus Richard Nixon and Alan <laughs> Dulles, it would seem, who saw any possible reason why they would want to protect this person at all. Like mm. his CIA and FBI files were just like full of grotesque <laughs> sort of um, activities and deeds that he'd been involved in. Mm. Um, 
So he, he stunk, stunk to high heaven. But uh, he successfully managed to... Well, he gave this bribe to Richard Nixon and Richard Nixon started to started to um, make efforts to intervene on his behalf, to pull strings, to pull levers. Um, it really wasn't going very well. They set up a phony corporation in California, which has the delightful name of the Western Tube Corporation. <laughs> they just make which, tubes. Uh, which, How bad could they be? Which ostensibly was... Um, essential to Californian and American uh, pipeline laying for oil, sure. I suppose. Um, I mean, it was a total, it was a total phony corporation. It didn't exist. California is half tubes, <laughs> but it did. It, <laughs> but it did manage to result in a massive tax break for Alexa. <laughs> Suffice to say, uh, the this aforementioned journalist Pearson had gotten hold of this story, knew that this bribe had happened. Um, but they really couldn't successfully manage to get it to stick onto Nixon. Uh, and there was one incriminating piece of evidence out there in the world, but unfortunately Pearson couldn't get hold of it. Um, the check that had been given to Nixon by Malexa um, was copied by a Romanian um, emigre to the US and a opponent of Malexa's, and it was... Handed off to somebody else, and then who eventually handed it to someone at the CIA. <laughs> so the crucial, pe- the crucial piece of evidence that could have seen to basically scuppered Nixon's political career in 1953 was handed to the one person who was most keen on protecting um, the longevity of his career. <laughs> Which, let's be clear, not many other people cared about Richard Nixon's <laughs> no, career. No, 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 Very no. uncharismatic uninteresting fellow uh-huh, uh-huh. so so suffice to say alan dulles managed to make this piece of incriminating evidence um disappear um but there you go there you go there dastardly you go. characters connected with even more dastardly characters um engaged in underhand scheming uh to protect their interests at all costs and ensure that nobody sees any form of justice for any type of evil that they've engaged in Tell you what. So that they could set people up in careers where they could go and do even more dastardly and evil things yeah. in the future. Tell you what. Watergate, not looking so bad. No, no, no. Not at all. It's just like they tap some phones. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Again, it's, 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 it's almost like these stories are written to make you go insane because it's like... As you say, keep turning over rocks and it's just the same people. <laughs> it's just like, it's like Alan Dulles died presumably, I wouldn't, I won't say happy, but presumably comfortable and presumably never faced any kind of issues for what he's done. The stuff that we're talking about that he's done so far, I hate to say it, but pales in comparison to the stuff that he'll do in these later parts of his career when it comes to foreign policy, the amount of deaths and suffering that he is directly responsible for in various countries around the world. Um, we'll get into that some other time, but like, again, I, I don't know. And unless there's something else that you kind of want to say on any like specific of these, uh, stories, like I forget exactly what it was that we talked about a little while ago, but we said something along the lines of, um, any kind of left-wing movement kind of like worth its salt needs to use like everything in its arsenal to get people to listen to them. Right. And, uh, when we were having the conversation, we were talking about like parliamentarism, entryism, all that kind of stuff. But like when it comes to any movement, whether it's socialist, 
you know, from progressive to communist, anarchist, whatever. If you're on the left, so much of your ideology does come down to just getting people to listen to you mm-hmm. and getting people to understand how exploited they are and how things would work better if they controlled their own lives, basically. And there are a lot of ways to go about that. Um, but these stories make it pretty clear who your enemies are, right? They make it pretty clear that it's not just some, you know, if you're like a libertarian, it's not just the state that's making these problems. Alan Dulles wasn't doing this for the benefit of the American state, right? Obviously, at some some things he did, he was, and mainly for his own power to make his influence greater. But like, it makes it clear that your enemies are also, you know, capitalists and also that these capitalists will do anything they can they'll murder you they'll torture you they'll make you live a life not worth living and they'll do that to as many people as possible just to get what they want and so when we talk about like building some kind of left-wing movement worth its salt with any amount of like a large following all of these stories so far have made me so much more mad than obviously like any kind of value theory because mm-hmm. I'm, that's not to like, you know, be like, a, you know, oh, all we need to talk about is the conspiracy theory stuff. But it's like, obviously, uh, the hard science stuff, the economics, all of that is vitally important to any kind of movement. But it's like, this stuff elicits such an emotional reaction for me of just disgust and anger that it's like, I can't help but thinking that these stories in some way need to be used outside of the far right as conspiracy theories and that like as they actually exist could be of vital use to some left movement yeah well said well said (laughs) yeah yeah i mean there aren't any there's no um use in abstract epigonomic theories if they don't actually speak to people's real existence of how they experience Mm. um their day-to-day lives and toiling under capitalism Mm -hmm. um i don't know how good a job we've done necessarily of connecting like abstract theory to lived reality although i hope that like people can start to fill in some of those things in their own lives if they so wish uh, or, or if it helps them at all um and similarly like abstract political theories of no use if you don't like connect it to actual political um maneuverings actual networks of power um there's no use speaking abstractly about how states operate, mm. how political economies operate, without looking at the actual histories of those systems, of the people involved, um, and sort of fully understanding the array of forces that are potentially um, collected in opposition to you, supposing mm. that we want to rally our own forces. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Oppose these people. <laughs> I mean, again, it's, it's worth... If nobody talks about this stuff, it, the, as we've seen over and over and over again, the right wing just lays claim to it immediately. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the like <laughs> the like amazing man who shows up to QAnon rallies claiming to be JFK Jr. as part of this like grand bastardization of like some kind of crazy JFK conspiracy theory that stems from like real events about the Dulleses, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But like it is worth emphasizing as much as possible that. These events are the system operating as it should. These are not anomalies. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if there's one conspiracy theory that's been totally um, taken over by the right, it's the idea of the deep state. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we deserve to be able to reclaim some of those ideas in some small measure kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. 
there are institutional sort of imperatives that operate below the surface mm. that maintain sort of a, a degree of continuity in the system kind of thing. Mm. Um, and some of these people that we've talked about today are representatives of that sort of institutional sort of maintenance of power, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I kind of I I tend to like cringe a little bit whenever I hear like the word cabal get thrown around. Uh, or I've been like, throwing it around a lot. <laughs> well, it's a good <laughs> word. <laughs> but like... It does, I think at this point it's, it smacks a little bit too much of conspiracy theory, but when you do realize that like, oh, well, okay, if your definition of a like deep state is just capitalists being capitalists, <laughs> like, okay, then like, yeah, I guess I agree with you. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, or like, like um, representatives of certain government agencies who understand which interests it is that they serve. Yeah. Um, and seek to support those interests dispassionately kind of thing i mean it only comes back to some of the things we were reading in miliband about mm. the idea of the state and about the idea of class and about these arenas not being neutral ones but one sort of like mm. overflowing with class interest yeah um yeah and i mean even if you're trying to explain this to like the dude that you work with like and trying to get that person maybe to go from being like a crazy QAnon conspiracy theorist to maybe seeing the light like it, John Foster Dulles, Ellen Dulles, two of the most uh, uh, influential American, I hesitate to say politicians, but like people of their era. And obviously, all you need to say is, that, you know, if you still believe that like, you know, voting, I'll exercise my political power by voting and I'll make a change by just doing that and nothing else. None of these people were ever elected, obviously. Alan Dulles never won an election. Nixon won an election somehow. I don't know how anybody voted for Nixon. But, like, yeah, I guess that just goes back to the idea of, like, this, you know, whenever... Liberals specifically have done a very good job of whenever anybody says deep state or anything like that, any kind of continuity of ideology beyond simple voting, that um, they make that person out to be a conspiracy theorist, but... It's pretty clear here <laughs> when we talk about what is and isn't a conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, it's just capitalism. Well, yeah, the idea of a deep state is so offensive to liberals because the idea from the liberal, the a liberal imaginary, I suppose, <laughs> is that um, is of a pluralistic state, right? Of, exactly. of like all interests represented equally or having mm -hmm. the same access to 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 the corridors of power, I suppose. When like we already knew, but we have grades of evidence now that like. Mm certain people have certain interests and certain connections to power and maintain that power ruthlessly. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And will do absolutely anything that they need. Absolutely. Ab ruthlessly is like almost, we haven't gotten into the foreign policy stuff as we will, I would imagine at a later episode sometime in the future, but um, ruthlessly almost doesn't even begin to cut it because mm. it's like, yeah, these people helped facilitate the Holocaust and then they did it over and over and over again to people just like us, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. they wouldn't hesitate to do it to us if it meant they would make more money either. Um, I would just like to say that the last sentence of Nikolai Malexa's um, <laughs> Wikipedia page is, having apparently never applied for American citizenship, Malexa died at his residence in New Jersey. <laughs> That's just <laughs> Wikipedia being like, wait a minute, how did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah it feels like there's quite a lot missing from this wikipedia yeah, article. Yeah. very strange i guess he could have been a yeah. citizen yeah, find something something slightly contradictory going on yeah exactly um oh well i'm sure it's all fine yeah, just some life. kind of bureaucratic snafu I don't <laughs> yeah. know. 
a box wasn't checked. Um, well, folks, I hope you now uh, – Think about something different other than cool, sweet, sugary, carbonated refreshment next time you reach for a Fanta. Um, and that you understand that uh, perhaps this this uh, American brand of capitalism, maybe we could do better. Maybe we could do better. Maybe something else could uh, be done because this stuff is all still continuing. Um, as we've said, yes, this book doesn't even get into the stuff that Alan Dulles really is infamous for. Or, I mean, it does, sorry, but we haven't covered it quite yet. This is all, like, leading up to the height of his power, because he's definitely not at it yet with Nixon. Um, but we will probably get there eventually, and God help us, we might even talk about the third part of the book. <laughs> I will say, this book, um, you're going to have to sit through some kind of, like, liberalish stuff. Um, extraordinarily well-researched, though. And written more like a novel than a hi- it's it's popular history, I suppose. Yeah, but um, yeah, Talbot dude did his uh, did his homework. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, good book, good book, good book, folks. Just wild, if nothing else. Um, anything else, Dan? I gotta. I haven't even eaten dinner. I'm like, I'm <laughs> no, like... <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you, everybody who sat through this entire thing. I, I don't know how long it is, but I feel like it's a long one. <laughs> been recording for two hours and fifteen minutes. Oh, God. <laughs> we have and we've been... covered two chapters. <laughs> yeah, we have been going off. <laughs> um, maybe we'll trim it down a little bit, but yes, uh, yes. we commend your your stamina. Absolutely. Commend your stamina. Well done. Um, and again, thank you to our sponsors, IBM, Coca-Cola, Chase, Ford, GM, Kodak, Dow Chemicals, Brown Brothers, Harriman, and Standard Oil. Um, this is always has been uh, Jack and Dan um, coming to you live from the Sullivan Cromwell offices uh, in a penthouse in, I don't know, Manhattan. I don't know. Um, yeah, I've been Jack. Um, thank you very much. I've been Dan. Cheerio, folks. See you next time. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time.